Please turn with me then this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we consider verses 23 to 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 23 to 28. Hear with me then the reading of God's inerrant Word. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Recently, Katrina found out that she will be having a a high school reunion soon. And when she found this out, one of the the first things that she did was she she pulled out some of her old yearbooks. And so a a couple weeks ago, I came across one of these yearbooks and I opened it up and and I was flipping through it. And I passed the senior class and at the, at the end of the yearbook, you had the, the parting words of the seniors to the younger classes. And as I looked at these words, you could tell that they knew that this was all that was left. To get in everything that they had to say right then and there. Those were their final words to thank their favorite teacher to shout out their best friends, to, to thank mom and dad, to, to give advice to the younger classes. And each student is only given so much space to say all that they had to say. And so they, they fill that space which is with as much as they can. Because they know that everyone in that senior class is going to get a yearbook. And for many of these students, these final words are going to be the words that they are remembered by. The last words, their final words. And for some reason, it it seems to work that way. We seem to to only hear and remember what comes at the end. And many wives who are here, I'm sure inside, are saying amen to that. For as husbands, I know that so often, when wives speak, we usually only hear what comes at the end. And wives know this. They test us. They give us a, a list to go to the store with to get. And then they say, did you remember what I said? Can you read it back to me? And we stumble and we fumble trying to remember. But we usually can remember the last couple of things that you said. We forget the beginning. We forget the middle. But for some reason we know the end. The, the end resonated. And I can't help but think that this is what Paul understands as he's bringing this letter to a conclusion. Because the contents of this letter, what this letter is about, its main points are summed up in these final six verses. As Paul knew that these words were going to be very important 
And so Paul, knowing that this was the, the final message that the saints would hear as this is read, he says a lot. He makes these words count, providing for the saints a, a final prayer, a final promise, final instructions, and a final blessing. And it's in these four points that we will see the, this entire letter come together. And so if they, if they missed any part of this letter as it was being read, as they gathered for worship on the Lord's Day, they will have received the very heart of this letter in Paul's final words. And so it is these final four points that we are going to conclude our study in 1 Thessalonians with. Final prayer, final promise, final instructions, final blessing. So let's look at our first point together, which is Paul's final prayer. Now, it makes sense, doesn't it, that as Paul draws to a close, that he's going to close with a final prayer. I mean, all of us here have been through our study of Colossians and Philippians and now 1 Thessalonians. And what we've learned through all those studies is that Paul is a man devoted to prayer. And he is devoted to prayer because Paul understands the power of prayer. He understands it is the diligent prayer of the saints that God uses as a mechanism to grant to us all that we need physically and spiritually. And so it is God who is deserving of the glory and the honor and the praise and to be thanked. And we see that this is how Paul, in fact, opens this very letter to the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul thinks so highly of prayer because of what God has promised to do through it that he does it constantly. And he never fails to mention these saints. Likewise, Paul thinks so highly of the one who answers prayers that when he petitions God, he never fails to thank Him as it is God who is the one who grants us the grace and bestows the blessings upon us. And so as I read this, I wondered to myself, is this the value that we here put on prayer? Do we value prayer so highly because of what God has promised to do in and through it? Do we value prayer so much because of the one who answers the prayer that we do it constantly? Or do we just engage in prayer on Sundays? Do we demonstrate the, what little value we have of prayer in just praying on the Lord's Day? And I want you to think about it. Think about if you had the ear of someone who had great importance here on earth. Think about it if you grew up with someone and they turned out to be the president or a king or some leader and you had their ear, would you not use it? Of course you would. And think about it now. We don't have a, an earthly king or an earthly president whose ear we have. But rather we have the ear of the heavenly king, the one who has brought all things into existence. We have his ear and he has an open door policy that we may come to him always and use it. And so shouldn't we, brothers and sisters, shouldn't we come to God 
and use and engage in prayer, asking for all that we need. Absolutely. And then so we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul so devoted to prayer? And in particular, in prayer to these saints. Paul tells us in verse 23, when he says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is devoted to prayer because Paul desires their complete sanctification. And he knows that their sanctification is not a human effort. And so Paul must go to God, for it is God that we all need. As sanctification is both the will of God and the work of God in the life of the believer. Sanctification is, is not a natural process of moral reformation. It is not about us cleaning ourselves up and becoming a better you and I. Instead, sanctification is God working within the very soul of fallen man to bring about the renewal of the image of Christ inside of us. That is what sanctification is. And so being a divine action by God, just as sin has touched our whole being, sanctification likewise touches our whole being. This is why Paul says in verse 23, in our spirit, and in our soul, and in our body, Paul is not a trichotomist. Which is to say that he believes that we are composed of of three parts. Spirit, soul, and body. That's not what Paul is teaching here. He's not teaching that soul and spirit are two different parts of man. But really what he is doing is emphasizing what Calvin calls two departments of the soul. Soul and spirit are two departments of of the soul. Scripture is clear in the creation of man in Genesis. Right? That God creates man, his body, out of the dust of the earth and then breathes into him soul. There are two parts, body and soul. And so instead, what Paul is using is the same distinction that others have used in Scripture, like the prophet Isaiah. In speaking of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9, Isaiah says this, My soul yearns for you in the night and my spirit within me earnestly seeks you. You see, this is the distinction. The the soul, as we've learned elsewhere, as we read the Psalms before, and we've said that the soul is where the will and affections of men lie. It's in the soul. This is why Paul can say, my soul yearns for you. It's the soul that loves God. But then he can convey that the spirit is what yearns, or the spirit, excuse me, is what seeks after you. Because it is the spirit is where the intellect of man lies. And so that's why the, it's the spirit that seeks, that looks for God. But they are both describing two aspects of the one soul. Man's intellect, man's will, man's affections. Now, Sometimes spirit and soul can be synonymous as well. We can read this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says, I'm not with you in body, but with you in spirit. Well, he doesn't say soul. Sometimes spirit and soul can be synonymous terms 
or sometimes it can be used to distinguish two aspects or two departments of the one soul. But this is really just a way for Paul to say he wants us to be completely sanctified. This is his prayer. This is why he adds the the body as well. Many times the body is also called the flesh, right? But does that mean body and flesh are two different things? No, they're just synonymous words. But they also can be distinguished depending on what it is you're speaking of. And he asks that the body be brought into uh, sanctification as well because it is the body of man that follows the intellect and the affections. And so Paul desires the, the whole man, intellect, affections, body, to be brought into complete conformity to God and that it be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul hasn't stopped instructing the saints how to live expectantly for the return of Christ. This is what he's been doing this this whole letter. And he continues his instruction. Here has the inevitable return of Christ in view. That's what he has in view as he prays this. And so Paul's prayer then is essentially a request made to God that he would preserve these saints in whole, body and soul at the return of Christ as their completion and sanctification is predicated upon the the God of peace doing this work in them. And yet, this isn't something that the saints are sitting around and biting their nails about or, or have to worry or fret if God is, will do this work or not. For Paul tells us in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Here's point two. The final promise. Paul has just offered a, a final prayer on behalf of the saints seeking their complete sanctification and that they would be kept blameless at the return of Christ. And now what he's doing is he's providing assurance to their faint hearts, reminding them that God is trustworthy and faithful and they can be sure that He will do all that He has promised. It is not will God or won't He. It is He will surely do it. And when you think about it, isn't it this assurance that we all need? We all need to hear the promises of God. And we all need to be reminded of the ways in which God has already been faithful to us. Especially in those times where we're dealing with persecution or affliction or if we're struggling with sin or those times in which we have worry and fear or guilt. These are the times that we need to hear the promises of God and be made known that we are His children. And children these saints are. You recall from chapter 1, Paul told the saints that he knows that they are loved and chosen by God. And so these promises are for these saints just as they are for you and I. And remember what these saints were dealing with in Thessalonica. People were trying to get them to turn away from the message Paul proclaimed to turn back to worshiping vain idols. But what did Paul tell the saints? This ought to be expected. In chapter 3, what did he say? Suffering is your destiny. You are destined to suffer. You ought to expect this. Remember in chapters 4 and 5, people were telling the saints that their loved ones who have died have missed out. That now that they have died, they will not be with the Lord when He returns. And so what does Paul do? He comforts and encourages them that they have not missed out. 
And that in fact, when Christ returns, the living and the dead will both be raised to be with Him in the air. And so they were to believe in that promise. And such in the same way, they are to believe in this promise. That they will be kept blameless at the return of their Lord. And this is the promise that you and I have as well. That we will stand blameless before God at the judgment seat. That God's grace will continue in our life. And every member here who has been brought into the covenant of grace, for those whom He is Father, know this, He will never stop being Father. For those who the the Son has died and has bestowed these blessings upon, the Son will never fail in His office as mediator. For all of us who have been indwelt with the Spirit, know this, the Spirit will not fail in His work of applying those benefits to you and I. This is the promise that the author of Hebrews speaks of. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. The author says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after the days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. And in hearing this, then what does the author say our response ought to be? We'll look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us do what? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and let our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the author of Hebrews says our response should be one that causes us to hold fast to our confession. It should cause us to be strengthened in our faith. It should cause us to love one another more. It should cause us to be motivated to do good works. It should cause us to love coming together, to worship together. This is the response that these promises of God ought to elicit. Dedication, devotion, praise, worship, love. This is what Paul desires to do in delivering this final promise. To motivate them. 
to motivate them. That they remember from chapter 1 that they have turned from idols to serve the true and living God. The God whose covenant cannot be broken. He will surely do it. That is the promise that we have. And yet Paul also asked something from the saints. This is point three. In verses 25 to 27, we have the final instructions. Look, starting at verse 25, Paul says this, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I wonder how many of us find it easy to ask others for prayer. I wonder if we polled other evangelical churches in the area what the percentage would be of people who say they find it easy to ask others for prayer. So often I think that many Christians see or look at asking for prayer as a sign of weakness. Like it's the ones who are weak in faith who need the prayer. But the irony is is that the one who know to ask for prayer, they're the ones who are strong in faith. Not the ones who think they don't need it. That's a sign of spiritual maturity to understand yourself. To understand your own frailty and weakness and know that not only ought you to be praying for yourself, but you need others to be praying for you as well. This is what the church is it's called to do. This is what being a part of the church is about. Loving one another and we love one another as we pray for one another. We are not in this Christian life by ourselves. And this ought to be comforting to us. Right? We're not the only ones who have God's ear. Each and every one of us here who are believers have equal access to God. And so, we ought to be open with one another and what we need prayer for. We ought to be specific about what it is that we need prayer for. And then allow your brothers and sisters to demonstrate their love to you by praying for you. And as Paul has asked for prayer, it ought to teach us that we too need to ask for prayer. Now next, after asking for prayer, Paul tells the saints to to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now upon hearing this, after service, I want none of you to come up and give me a kiss. Nobody needs to be playing a big wet one on my cheek. But this holy kiss was a sign in the Greco-Roman world of a close and family-like relationship. Many people in certain cultures may still greet one another with a kiss. You have some who who do the the double kiss, one on each cheek. Some cultures do that. In America, we tend to just do a a handshake. But some of us, if if your sibling's going to go see grandma, you say, hey, when you see grandma, give her a hug for me. This is similar to what Paul's doing. But the cultural sign is not really the concern. More so, what the sign reveals. That's what we ought to be concerned with. It was a sign that the saints were part of the one family of God. Because Paul doesn't just say, give them a kiss, does he? No, Paul says, give them a, a holy kiss. Right? A holy kiss, a sign that signified their oneness and their unity together in Christ. That's what the holy kiss signified. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14, calls it a, a kiss of love. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. 
Now I know that some of you recoil at the thought of being greeted this way by your brothers and sisters, by someone who's not biologically your mother or father. But remember who the church is. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people that we will spend all of eternity with. Many, if not all of us, have biological mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who will not be there with us. And so although we may not greet one another with a kiss any longer, don't let the principle behind this instruction lie by the wayside. We belong to the family of God together. And so our behavior ought to reflect that reality. We ought to be a tight and close-knit community here. And so the church is a place we learn from Paul that we pray for one another. The church is a place where we embrace one another as a family. And also, it is a place where God's Word is to be read. As we see here that Paul instructs them to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now Paul has already told us in this letter why hearing the message is so important. He tells us the Word that is to be, to be proclaimed to all the brothers as is, is a word that would have been read to them as they gathered on the Lord's Day, is important to be read because it is not just some words written by Paul, but it is the very Word of God. Paul said this in chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you have received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. You see, Paul wants the Word to be read to all the brothers because Paul understands that God works sanctification through the Word. And Paul's goal is what? Their complete sanctification. He's already told us that. And how do they progress in their sanctification? Through hearing the Word. This is why it's so important to Paul. This is why it ought to be so important to you and I. Today, in today's churches, The the preaching of the Word is suffering. It's lacking. Today, musical performance or motivational speaking leads and is front and center. But these things are no substitute for the proclamation of God's Word. And the church suffers where there's no preaching. Our sanctification, in fact, is stifled where there is no preaching. And so we need to heed the Apostles' instructions. Not only because He tells us this is how we're sanctified, but we need to heed His instructions because likewise He's telling us what comprises the worship of God. It's the preaching and the hearing of the Word. This is to be central. He doesn't say to them, make sure you have a a 50-piece orchestra. Make sure you have nice lighting and soft music or a big band. He doesn't say any of this. What does He say? Make sure the saints hear the Word. And unfortunately, we focus our attention on everything else except for the Word. But its importance is evident in Paul including it in his final instructions. And now after giving that final instruction, Paul closes out the letter in verse 28 with a final blessing. This is point four. Final blessing. Look at verse 28 with me as Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We call this final blessing also a benediction. 
Now, an important distinction to make is that a benediction isn't really a prayer. I think so often people look at a benediction just like it's a prayer, and it's not. Rather, a benediction is the pronouncement of God's blessing on us. Right? Prayers go from earth to heaven, from our lips to God. Benedictions come from God to His people, from heaven to earth. And this is important to understand. And it's important because the benediction isn't placed at the end of Paul's letter. It is not placed at the end of our worship by happenstance. It's designed to come at the end. This is why when we close with our final hymn, we end with a benediction. God has designed this for us that we depart out of His presence knowing that He dwelt in our midst that He has promised to continue to bless us. And so as we go forth out of this building, we can walk out of here with confidence knowing that God will do this very thing. This is why when the pronouncement is made, it is to be received with joy and with faith. And I say that a lot of times we, we look at the benediction as a prayer because we can even see in our behavior as the benediction is pronounced, right? What, do, what does everyone do? You bow your heads as if you are praying. But we are not praying. What we ought to be doing when the benediction is read is be looking up to heaven and to be receiving the direct word from God to His church. That is how we ought to receive the benediction. This is also why we don't end the service with a doxology. Doxology is is praise. It's, It's again from man to God. But this is whose worship service? This is God's worship. And so God gets first word and God gets last word. As we open with the call to worship. That is God summoning His people to come and worship. And then He sends us away with the benediction, a promise of His blessing throughout the week until we return that following Lord's Day. And God's blessing is really what we need, isn't it? We need God's grace individually and corporately. If we want to live faithfully and obedient, we need God's grace. If we want to honor and glorify God in worship and work, we need God's grace. If we want to continue to live expectantly for the return of Christ, we need God's grace. We are in constant need of grace. But thankfully, brothers and sisters, we serve a God who has an infinite amount of grace. And He gives and He gives and He gives without measure to His people. So as we draw to a close, we've identified Paul's final words which consist of a prayer, a promise, instructions, and a blessing. This sums up the main thrust of this whole letter. These four points have been what Paul has been talking about all five of these chapters. But none of these, brothers and sisters, mean nothing apart from the One who fills them with meaning. Apart from Christ, prayer has no function, no meaning. What reason do we have that think the Creator would hear the prayers of the creature without someone mediating for us on our behalf. Without the Son whose blood 
reconciled us to the Father, what reason do we have to think that we can cry out, Abba, Father? It is because Christ's body was broken that we have become adopted sons and daughters. Without Christ, what assurance do we have of any promise of God? None. Promises only mean something because they are promises given to us in Christ. Why should we follow instructions? Right? They would be burdensome apart from Christ. But we are His body and He our head. And so body and head are to walk in unison. We are the bride of Christ. He has purchased us, redeemed us, so that we might walk in newness of life. And now because of that love shown to us, we likewise return that love. And we obey instruction out of love and gratitude to God. And what need of a blessing do we have apart from Christ? None. We would all be living here on earth seeking to bless ourselves. But as Christ, we are the recipients of His many blessings. And we desire these blessings because through them He sanctifies us, He preserves us, and He purifies us. And so don't forget that this is a letter written to the church. This is a letter written to believers. Not anyone can do this. You can't offer right prayers apart from Christ. You can't receive the promises apart from Christ. You can't obey God's instructions apart from Christ. This letter was written to a people who have now been enabled to do these in and through Christ. And so let us as a church founded on Christ, the chief cornerstone, look to prayer, look to God's promises, obey His instruction, while cheerfully and with hearts filled with gratitude continue to receive by faith God's bountiful blessings. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the very promises we have in Christ. We thank You for Your instruction. Yet, Father, we thank You for the gift of the Spirit who indwells us, who has given us a new heart, who inclines us to obey, who increases our measure of faith that we might trust in Your promises, who intercedes for us that we might pray right prayers. We thank You for this, Father. We pray for the continued blessings that we have in Christ. And we come before you asking all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.